it's time to receive the words of life and to expound on them. So grab your Bible or your device and find Mark 3. We come to the second paragraph in verses 7 to 12 in Mark 3, this Lord's Day. I want to begin by reading those verses. The message today is entitled, What to be known for. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should be ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed upon him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. This is God's true and living revelation. Before he died, the great German reformer Martin Luther was asked to summarize his life and give an account of the effect he believed his ministry had on the world. Here is what Dr. Luther said. I was well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. I was well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Here's what he meant. He was saying that he was intimately known by God. He was saying that he was known by men. They either loved or hated him. And so to this day, he's either loved or hated. He was convinced by saying that I was well known in hell. That he was known by Satan and the demons. By that, he meant that his ministry, his preaching, his teaching and his writing was a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so may it be for our lives. I hope that you know God. And I hope that he knows you. So that you can live eternally. I hope that those those around you know that you are born of God. By seeing your godly conduct. And I hope the forces of darkness shudder. At the sight of who you are because of your identity. Why do I hope that for you? Simply put, because that summarizes the life of our Lord Jesus. If we're to follow Jesus, then we too, like Dr. Luther, must be well known by men for our gospel work. And we should be known by hell 
for identity in Christ. In Mark 3, verses 7 to 12, Mark brings to light two areas where Jesus was well known. Which reminds us of the incredible impact that Christ had going into his second year of ministry. Now we know the world loves. No, they live for the approval of man. The world lives for the love of man. They live for the fanfare, the attention. But we, who are true Christians, we don't want to be well known for any other reason than the right reason. The world may have an unbelieving, mystical, or extra-biblical view or attitude towards Satan and demons. But we who are true Christians... We affirm their existence. We affirm their status and their influence. But we all know that they are petrified of Christ. They're petrified of Christ. You know Christ, whose spirit lives in us, whom we are one with, whom we will reign with one day. So if we're to be well known, let it be known, let's let's be known for our work of gospel ministry. Let us be known for identity in Christ. Because that's what our master was known for. We see this clearly in this passage. In verses 7 to 10, first is, The fact that Jesus was well known on earth for his work. Now what needs to be laid bare here from the get-go is this. The Lord's popularity was with the sick, the desperate, the ill, and the ordinary. Notice that it was not the healthy. It was not the wealthy. It was not the elite or the privileged or the powerful. Who was it? flocks to Jesus. The needy. The needy. So you you cannot truly come to Christ unless you know you're needy. Right? Notice also that these crowds, uh, they were not coming to hear him, but to be touched by him. To be physically served by him. To get what they could get out of him. And that indicates something very significant, which we'll get to later. But, you know, lest I be accused of being too pessimistic with regard to these needy people. I can't blame them. Can you? I mean, if if you're sick with a debilitating disease or terminally ill condition, I guarantee... That you would get on a plane, fly to the ends of the earth to get the cure if you believed you could. Wouldn't you? If you you had a child who was dying and you heard the only way for her to live was to go to Timbuktu 
you would spend every penny to bring your child to that person, wouldn't you? But as we'll see, even though Jesus was so popular, he wasn't just a faith healer, right? He was the Messiah. But now I want, I want to get acquainted with these people. Who are they? Where are they coming from? Here in the text we see that they come from six different places, five or six different places, from all over the map. Now I want to put on my teaching hat here for a second, so try to track with me. Justin, go ahead and put that up if you can. Is the projector on? There we go. Okay, I know it's not too huge, but I think you can read it. First, these people who came to find Jesus were the Galileans. Now, here is the region of Galilee, and here is Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. Now, the text says, if you have your Bible, that Jesus withdrew to the sea in verse 7. You see that? Jesus is in this area right here. He, he, was, he was just in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, Mark said that he withdrew to the sea, so he's going to the Sea of Galilee. First, it's the Galileans that flocked to Jesus. This is a great multitude from Galilee followed. And so here you see this is a map of, of Palestine in the time of Christ. And so Galilee is in the northern region of Palestine. These Galileans, they are the locals who lived where Jesus was working. This, the, the, these are the people that lived where he was healing the sick and reading and preaching. And what else was Jesus doing besides preaching and healing? Huh? Well, sure, he was praying. I just said that, didn't I? Preaching, teaching, praying, reading. What did we just learn about the last two weeks? Jesus was fighting. He was contending with the Pharisees, wasn't he? So all of these people from that area, they're the first to come, right? That's, that's what Mark says. They're the first ones to show up. Galileans, they have seen his ministry because that's where Christ has essentially located his base of ministry. This is also where he was born, right? Nazareth, and where he was baptized. See the Jordan River right here. Mark 1.14 says that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel. Mark 1.39, he went to the synagogues throughout all of Galilee. So Jesus has spent his time in Galilee. And so it's only natural for throngs of Galileans to follow Jesus to the sea. But then there is a second group that really starts to highlight the magnitude of Jesus' ministry. Verse, verse 7 and 8, from Judea and Jerusalem. So you see here, the region in that southern part of Palestine. And here's Jerusalem. So they're going all the way from Jerusalem up to Capernaum to see this guy, Jesus, who is healing people. Now, since we know a little about the Pharisees now, think about this. If Jerusalem is, as you know, the holy city, right, the, the religious capital where the temple is, if crowds are pouring out of the religious capital to see Jesus... Whom might you think would be a little annoyed by that? 
to put it lightly. The Pharisees, right? So you see, Jesus here, Mark wants, or, yeah, Mark wants us to understand that, 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 that Jesus is, is pulling more and more authority and influence from the Pharisees. So, so the Pharisees, as we learned last, passage, last week in the, in the previous passage, they already want to kill Jesus. So, so now it's just, Jesus is kind of like just, you know, um, keeping his, his, his finger on the wound here. Seeing, seeing Jesus attract people from Jerusalem would have emboldened the Pharisees to even more rage. If they sought to destroy him after they saw him preach in a small synagogue, imagine how they would think when they see that Jesus' influence was expanding right in front of them. There's a third group here uh, that, that highlights Jesus' popularity. If you look in the text, it says, Idumea. Idumea. Now, this is a Greek name for the word Edom, which I'll explain that in a minute. But, but what you need to understand here, it's in the southernmost part of Palestine, down here. And so, so people are traveling, you know, by donkey, by foot, 100 miles up to Capernaum. This region of Idumea, it was the region inhabited by the Edomites. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Who are the Edomites? Well, they are the people that, descend, that descended from Esau. Remember Esau? He was the firstborn son of Isaac and the twin brother of Jacob. Remember the story? As an adult, Esau rashly sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of what? Red soup. The birthright was a double portion of his father's inheritance and the right to become the family chief. When Isaac felt that it was time for him to pass on the mantle, Isaac either didn't know about this arrangement or he forgot. So he calls Esau. And Rebecca is eavesdropping. Rebecca is Isaac's wife. Jacob and Esau's mom. So if you remember the story at all, Esau is favored by his mom. He's a mama's boy. <laughs> Esau is favored by his daddy. Because he's the rugged hunter. Jacob is the soft, nerdy kid who just stays at home all day and doesn't want to go hunting. So what happens, as you can remember probably from the story of Joseph, what happens when mommy and daddy play favoritism? Bad things happen. So Rebecca sees that her own husband is going to give Esau the birthright. But Rebecca doesn't want that to happen. And so you might not remember this part. She is the one that goes and fetches Jacob and says, Son, we, we, we need to intervene here. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to go into your father's tent and you're going to lie 
so that Isaac thinks you're Esau. Esau said, or Jacob says, Mom, uh, Dad's not going to fall for that. <laughs> I, 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 Esau is hairy. I'm smooth-skinned, the, the, uh, the text says. But Rebecca insists. Jacob complies with his mommy's request or command. She goes. She, she, she somehow uh, goes and secures a garment um, from Esau, so he would smell like Esau. And, and then they and then he they they attach some type of fur onto Jacob's smooth skin, so he would feel like Esau. And 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 the reason why she thought this would work was because Isaac was so old; he was he was blind. And so. So, you know, when you go blind, I've, I don't know, but I've heard that when you go blind, you, 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 your body automatically sort of intensifies your other senses, right? So, so Rebecca and Jacob know that they've got to do something very drastic to deceive Isaac, and they do. So, so Isaac, um, you know, ends up falling for the, the, the scam and... He blesses Jacob. But now at that point in the story, you've got to wonder, what about Esau? Esau is still Isaac's firstborn. What about him? Well, having forfeited his birthright for a bowl of stew, you know what Esau proved by that stupid little decision? He, he didn't care about his faith. He, he didn't care about honoring his father and his heritage and his culture. He spat on his responsibility. He took pagan wives. So, Jacob said, I, I've already given my blessing. I can't, I can't give it to you. So, Esau didn't take that very lightly, did he? He gets so angry that he wants to kill his brother. And so Jacob has to flee. So Esau took more pagan wives. He fathered a nation called Edom. Edom is a Semitic word that means red. From the red stew that he ate. So his nation literally became named after the red stew he traded for his birthright. That's what Edom means. So, the Edomites were an apostate people, and they became Israel's enemy. They worshipped fertility gods, then they regularly attacked Israel. Needless to say that the Edomites hated and I'm not being hyperbolic here. <laughs> the Edomites hated the Jews. In fact, a, a little tidbit here. An Edomite, a.k.a. an Idumean, see, Idumean? It was an Idumean who ordered the massacre of, in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Christ the child. Did you know that? King Herod the Great was an Edomite. 
So we see here in Mark 3 that, that even though, this is why it's just amazing, this is why I love expository preaching. We see here that as we study the background of the Edomites, at this point in Jesus' ministry, we see that even Israel's worst enemies wanted to touch Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Even, even the enemies of Israel conducted a mass exodus to see some Jew who they heard had miraculous powers. Wow. So then there's a fourth and a fifth group that highlights even more of a magnitude of Jesus' popularity beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. So here you see way up here, Tyre and Sidon. See, you see up there and, and, and the top? That's, that's not even in Palestine. That's, that's almost off the grid. And then you have uh, beyond the Jordan. That's just another way of saying people who live over here. Uh, all, all the Gentiles who are so dirty and clueless, even them who live on the other side of the, the, the Jordan in Perea, they're coming to see Jesus. Perea meaning literally beyond the other side. And so the people from the, uh, Perea and Tyre and Sidon, they're, they're, they're predominantly Gentiles. And, and what one commentator said about these two groups of people coming to see Jesus, that one commentator said that Mark is trying to suggest that people all over the map are accepted by Christ. I don't know if we could read too much into that, but it, it, is, it is profound to think that even Gentiles who weren't even part of Israel, Jesus didn't turn them away. Which, think about it, would even make the, the, the first even more mad. The enemies of Israel coming, and the Gentiles who... Way out, way off the grid are coming. And so as word starts to spread miles and miles about Jesus, people from all over the north, south, east, and west are coming. From all over the map. Hordes of people. Waves and waves of people. Okay? So you go ahead and take that down, Justin. I don't want you guys to be captivated by that map for the rest of the message. So there are so many people, as you can see. Was that map helpful for you guys? Okay, good. So, so these people are coming, and Jesus is concerned for his safety because there's so many of them. Look at verse 9. He told his disciples to be ready on standby because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. Now, literally, this word crowd means to crush. It means press together to compress. So Jesus sees this crowd, almost like a stampede, coming to him. It's growing larger and larger. It's evolving into a frenzy. So he needs to create some space. And he uses the geography to his advantage. Now this is an extraordinary scene. Now... Anybody, anybody watch the State of the Union address? 
State of the Union? Well, I'm not going to talk about anything Trump said. But what, what really amazed me after the address was over was the sea of people that descended upon the president. And, and I noticed um, men who looked very tough in nice black suits with a wire coming out of their ear. What were they doing? They were making sure that all of these people didn't get too close to the president, not because those people were dirty Gentiles or below him, because they didn't want the president to be in danger of getting hurt or assaulted. So, in the same way, the apostles are being ordered, kind of like secret service agents, to make sure that the crowd doesn't get to him so that they don't do something to hinder Jesus. Verse 10 tells us that they came for a very specific reason. And by the way, we need to understand, and some of you know, know this is true, just because there's a large crowd doesn't mean they're for the right reason, right? And I, I think it's plain to see that the reason they came to Jesus was not right. Verse 10 says, for, or because, he's explaining that word for, explains what Mark had just stated. For he had healed many. Jesus did perform miraculous healings out of compassion as an expression of God's love. But that's not why he came to earth. Do you remember why he came? Well, Mark 138, this tells us. After having healed many, Jesus said, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Why did he come for preaching? Because preaching the gospel brings eternal healing. But healing the sick merely brings healing to the body. If one were to emphasize healing or any other type of work over preaching the gospel, it would be like finding somebody with a broken back and, and, just, and just giving him painkillers. Right? That might, that might numb the pain. That's going to give him some temporary relief. But... It's fleeting, right? The pain comes back. And what, what he really needs is invasive surgery to fix an internal problem. Right? The temporal healing gives, gives temporary hope. Spiritual healing gives eternal hope. Jesus came to give eternal hope. I'm reminded of a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
You guys ever heard of a guy named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Well, you're, you're about to get a church history lesson. So don't tune out. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor, a prestigious medical doctor in England, who turned preacher. He was a gifted, brilliant, respected physician, so much so that he had the opportunity to treat the royal family. He was marked out for stardom within the medical community. Until one day, the great doctor had an aha moment. All he said to himself was, you know, what I'm doing with my life is I am helping people go to hell healthy. He thought to himself, all I'm doing is helping people sin more. What I need to be doing is helping people address the real need for a new heart. And so for him, he knew that he needed to jettison his medical credentials and become a physician of the soul. By the way, did you know that's what a pastor is supposed to be? A pastor is not just a counselor. A pastor is not just a friend. A pastor is not just a teacher. He's a physician of your soul. So if you have soul problems, spiritual problems, you should be able to, in good confidence, be able to go to one of your elders. I digress. So... The doctor, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he left his prestigious and lucrative career in medicine for a ministry that would cost him everything. He left his medical manuals and, and, and stethoscope for a Bible and a pulpit. He left the company of royalty and dignitaries and politicians, and rich people. And he sought out the community of the poor and the lost. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't have Christian doctors. That's not the point. This is not to say that you need to stop what you're doing and go start preaching on the street corner. I'm not even saying that some of you men need to stop what you're doing and go to seminary. Maybe some of you will one day. But the point is this. Martin Lloyd-Jones developed the conviction that his brief time on earth should be focused on the primacy and supremacy of preaching. And not just any type of preaching. We don't have time for corny, short, superficial, shallow, topical messages. We don't have time for that. Martin Lloyd-Jones knew that if souls are going to be saved and be healed eternally, the word of God must be proclaimed. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, in other words, saw in Christ that preaching the gospel was the main thing. Jesus did not come to be a faith healer. He came to preach a message of faith and repentance. But sadly, at this juncture, Jesus was not well known for that. He was a celebrity because of his healing ministry. And he healed to authenticate his preaching. In other words, his work of healing was performed to prove to men that he was the Son of God. Now back to verse 10. With the result that all those who were afflicted or had afflictions pressed around him to touch him. Now, if you look at that word touch, it means to fasten to it. So don't read this. This is one word where the English might not capture a, the deepest meaning here. The, the crowds, they were not simply forming uh, a gathering with the hope of touching Jesus on the fringe. They were not pressing, crushing the Lord with hopes that they might just shake his hand. They weren't anticipating a light glaze at the fingertip. Or else why would Jesus feel the need to get on a boat? Jesus had to get into a boat because these people were desperate and they wanted to clutch to him. Now, how many of you have ever been to Disneyland? How many of you made the mistake of staying at Disneyland till 10 p.m. What's it like? It's a mass hysteria, isn't it? That little tiny road that's about the size of this, you know, platform it feels like. They're clustering together to see the fireworks. And for for an hour, there's strollers going that direction, there's wheelchairs going that direction, there's people tired and upset, and they want to get their seat to the fireworks. It's just pandemonium. It it makes me very anxious. I'm not an anxious person normally, but but I I, I praise the Lord that there was security there. Can you imagine that, that, that scene if there was no security? Now, that little gathering... Was just a, was just a tiny, as a tiny way to illustrate the mindset of this crowd. They, they were pushing. They were they were inching their way. It didn't matter what it took. They were going to get their spot to see Jesus because they heard of the Son of Man, his ability to heal, and blinded by their unbelief. That's all they wanted. And they wanted nothing to do with spiritual healing. That's what Jesus was known for. He was known on earth for his ministry. Sadly, he was known more for his healing, but Jesus didn't come to mainly do that, did he? He was an example. 
We should act like he acted. We should serve as he served. But if that's all Jesus is to you, brothers and sisters, you failed to grasp the priority. May we in our Christian lives not only conform to the character of Christ, but may we all together see what's most important. Gospel proclamation. May we be known for our kindness and our love and our generosity. But may we mostly be known by those around us for our gospel preaching and Bible exposition. A couple years ago, I met this one guy at a baseball game who lives in the area. And I was asking him about his church. And I said, tell me about your pastor. You know, did he go to seminary? How long has he been there? What's he preaching through? The dude couldn't tell me any of those things. All he said was, you know, our pastor just really loves people. And I thought, how sad. Because that's, that's not the pastor's job. To him... That meant he was just really nice and easygoing. He was just kind and welcoming. But I don't want to be known for that. When somebody asks you about your pastor or your church, I want you to say, my pastor shows me Christ every Sunday. My pastor points me to Jesus. My pastor loves me, not just by shaking my hand, pat me on the back, and saying, good morning, good to see you. If I am not challenging you to grow up in your salvation, if I am not challenging to examine yourselves, am I not challenging to stand for the truth? I'm not doing my job. Does that make sense? Jesus did not come just to do good works and to demonstrate his ability to be nice. Now, part of Bible exposition, part of gospel preaching, that, that's the loving relational part comes out of that. So I'm not saying we shouldn't have that, but that's not the priority. Because Christ came to preach. So that soul may be saved. He was well known on earth for that work. Secondly, Jesus was well known in hell for his identity. Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. His unclean spirits, this is a clear reference to demons. It simply means... Morally filthy, vile, polluted, impure. 
opposite the Holy Spirit. Mark says they saw him, which which isn't a simple, uh, you know, brief, short uh, gawk. This word for saw means to carefully observe. So they're watching Jesus. And when he came into their presence, look what they said. The text says they shouted, You are the Son of God. You and you alone are the Son of God. Notice that all it took for the demons to shudder was being in his presence. And let me just point out, by this text, we're reminded of what demons really are. I feel like I should remind you of this because of the hyper-mystical view of demons today. Demons are really powerless, panicky, pathetic beings. They are. Notice they didn't try to flee from the presence of God. They fell prostrate. They fell on their faces, and they made a true confession. When they see our Lord, they shout, You are the Son of God. This is the second of four times this title is used by Mark, and it's the first time it's professed. Did you get that? It's the first time... It's professed. And it comes from the mouth of demons. By professing this title, they are professing Christ's true divine identity. And they fearfully recognize him as being the sovereign king of the universe. Jesus, as the Son of God, means that his lineage is directly from God, he is co eternal co-equal with the Father, and therefore, since that's true, Jesus is the sovereign king. Did you know that even as I preach, the demons know this? They believe it? And James 2.19 says they shudder. Shudder, it means to bristle, having one's hair stand on end. To quake with fear. Now, have you ever been so scared that you, you're literally shaking? That feels like? I do. I'll never forget the time when I was in the Iraq war and we got news that my friend had been killed. There was no time to process it. There was no time to get counseling. There was no time to mourn. We stood in a formation got our mission brief to go on patrol that very night. 
And I'll tell you, I've never experienced fear to that degree. We went outside the wire in our vehicle. With every shot that was heard, we all cowered down in our armored vehicle like babies. Let me tell you something. That fear that I felt that most of you never have pales into comparison to the level of fear that demons have for Christ. Now, if you know that Christ lives in you, they will also fear you. When you're preaching the gospel, when you're living a godly life, when you're pursuing Christ on your knees and on your face, living in submission to his will, the demons can't do anything to you. The sad thing is, though, these demons, they have better theology than a lot of people today. They rightly professed who he was when the people didn't. And Jesus made it clear that he was not looking for publicity from the demons. Look at verse 12. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Why? Well, we've explained this before, so I'll be brief. Jesus tells the demons to keep their mouths shut because he doesn't want unholy demons, unholy beings, to be his chief ambassadors. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? He doesn't want to appear to be in cahoots with Satan, who in reality is his chief enemy. Christ commissions his followers to evangelize, not his adversaries. Secondly, the Pharisees later, they're going to accuse Jesus of doing his power, of doing his work through the power of the devil. And so if demons are going to tell people about Jesus, then that would just serve as fuel for the Pharisees to discredit Jesus. So Jesus wants nothing to do with these demons other than to command them. They're not his partners. And so he commands them to keep their mouths closed. As we could see here in our text this morning, we can see that Jesus certainly was well known by the Father. Actually, that's presupposed, right? He was well known on earth for his work, his healing, which was really secondary. And he was well known in hell for his identity. Are you known in heaven? Does God know you? Have you taken up your cross? Are you following him? Are you known on earth? 
Are you known on earth, or are you just trying to skate by? Not being noticed. Staying under the radar. Very few of us will have the influence in the church like Luther. But if you consider where God has placed you, can you say that people around you know you for your godly character and faith in the gospel? Are you well known in hell? Does your life threaten Satan's agenda, or does your life help expand it? Those are some provocative questions for all of us to take home as we think about this passage today. It's clear to see that Christ was popular because of the work he did. He used that to his advantage. Preach to him. We can see that he was known by the demons. And they, liber- lib- they literally shook with fear. I can guarantee you the men and women who have influenced the world for Christ in a small way or a big way. The demons know who they are. And because Christ is in the believer, they fear the believer, the believer doesn't fear them.